This is Bloomberg Best. Bloomberg Best is about the insight and the context that we get from our guests. It's a great way to catch up on some of the stories you might have missed on the Bloomberg. Stories you're not going to find in any other news organization. I'm Denise Pellegrini on this weekend edition of Bloomberg Best. Morgan Stanley's James Gorman says regulations on banks will be wound back. You see pendulum swing and we swung to lighter regulation to I think an excessive proposal. I think it'll swing back. Double lines Jeffrey Sherman on prospects for a soft landing. If we start to see some of these rate cuts, maybe some of those problematic areas do get skirted. Bruin Capital's George Pine says better start paying those college athletes. Those players deserve to be paid and I think you see the courts now recognizing that. Bloomberg Best, Bloomberg's best stories of the week. Powered by 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries around the world. You know, James Gorman has stepped down from leading Morgan Stanley as of this month. Ted Pick has succeeded Gorman. Gorman is staying on as executive chairman. And Bloomberg Shanali Basic had a chance to catch up with Gorman and ask him about Morgan Stanley's future and about bank regulation as well, and also about the succession. Check this out. This is the first interview in your new role as executive chairman. What's your most urgent priority? Uh, well, it was obviously to come and do this interview with you is my first <laughs> priority. Um, you know, it's, it's to support Ted, and uh, he's a terrific guy, will be a great CEO. Um, and my job really is to help him as best as I can, uh, but stay out of the road. So uh, that's, that's really my priority. It's interesting. I've heard you used to write a uh, handwrite, a checklist of priorities at the start of every year. If you think about how you change gears into executive chairman, what does that checklist this year look like? It, I didn't write it this year. Uh, I did that when I was CEO for 14 years, and it gave me a framework for focusing on a few big things that matter. Because in these jobs... Um, there are thousands, literally thousands of issues that come at you, and you can easily lose sight of the stuff that actually matters, which is a few big things. So every year, I would tee up on the first day I came into the office, which was yesterday, I came in, um, and write down the list of 10 things. And, you know, one of them uh, was always no new mistakes, which I defined as things that cost us more than half a billion of capital. Um, sometimes they were personal, like stay fit or get fit or... Uh, sometimes they're about development and leadership with our top team. But no, different jobs, so different. You've got, you've got to switch. So that's what I've done. You know, I'm, I'm glad you brought up mistakes because mm -hmm. to the extent that we learn from life's challenges, I'm curious about your single moment. What is the biggest mistake you ever thought you've made at Morgan Stanley? You know, this is an exit interview. It's the <laughs> chance to look back at the last decade or so. You know, I, <clears throat> it might sound immodest. I don't think we made a lot of big mistakes. I mean, the... Um, if, if you look at the major things that we did, whether they were the deals, the Smith Barney, E-Trade, Eaton Vance, um, succession, which is critical, uh, navigating through COVID, you know, we got, we got, frankly, most of the big stuff right. I wish we hadn't sold Van Campen when we sold it to uh, Marty Flanagan and Invesco. So that was something I think it took a little too long to get the full team that I wanted in place in the right jobs. Um, but, the, you know, you can't do these jobs and not make mistakes. When I see a mistake, I embrace it. You know, it's like Kipling. You have those, those travelers of success and failure. You've got to embrace them both. Because if you're not making mistakes, the chances are you're not doing enough. So I never see a mistake as a negative. I just see it as something you learn from and move forward. It's funny. You kind of got Morgan Stanley at rock bottom, if you will. Mm. But a lot of investors think Ted Pick's job is even harder because he is on a high note. What do you think Ted's biggest challenge is going to be? 
Oh, I don't, th I don't think it's harder or easier. They're just different. You go through different cycles. I mean, the Morgan Stanley I've had for the last five years is very different from the first five or the middle, middle four. Um, you know, for Ted, he's got one of the biggest and, and most successful companies in the world. Uh, phenomenal brand. He's a great culture carrier, so I'm sure the culture will stay in track. The real choices will be strategic. So when opportunities come to move left or move right, how do you do that? How aggressively do, do you do it? And when do you do it? So that's, they're really the choices. And in the first year, while I'm here, I'll obviously um, share with him whatever, you know, uh, views I have on stuff if he wants that. But in the later years, he'll have his team working with him on that. So I'm, I'm confident about that. We'll talk more about strategy in a second. But another thing, as you transition to executive chairman, you have roles mm -hmm. now outside of the bank. Mm -hmm. uh, and succession is arguably one of the most important things you could do as a manager. And a big new responsibility for you is serving on the board of Disney, ironically, where succession has been one of the biggest issues. How does Disney live past Bob Iger? Well, firstly, I mean, Bob Iger is a phenomenal executive. I mean, he is... Uh, iconic for a reason. He's led that company uh, through so many cycles and uh, really is a gifted leader. So it's a great pleasure to work with him, but it's not for me to judge Disney's future. I haven't joined the board yet. I'm starting, uh, I think, February 4th or February 2nd, I'm sure, early February. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. I, I like uh, dealing with complex situations. Uh, the changes going on in that industry are profound and there are choices to be made. So that to me is very interesting. And obviously, given the experience I've had leading succession with our board here, with Dennis Nally, the head of our comp committee, and Tom Gloser, the head uh, lead director, um, you know, hopefully I can add something to the succession committee that I'll be joining. What about uh, pressing challenges outside of succession at Disney? Do you think that there's anything that could be immediately addressed mm -hmm. as they contend with activists? Well, you know, and there, there are always, we had, we've had, uh, how many activists did we have here? We had at least two, and I think they each had two bites of the apple. Um, so no, that, that is not what the focus should be on. The focus should be on strategic choices companies make. But again, I haven't joined the board, so I can't, I can't talk about a company I'm not even uh, an insider on. That wouldn't be fair to the team. More on strategic decisions at Morgan Stanley. One massive question. You've built this massive wealth management business, mostly in the United States. You have talked previously about the idea of Morgan Stanley inter internationally expanding more. Do you think Morgan Stanley, though, can be a giant international wealth manager? Oh, sure. There are a lot of wealthy people in this world. I think population just tipped 8 billion. And, um, uh, you know, I, I've just come back from a long trip through Asia, through uh, Thailand, Singapore, Hong Kong. Um, and I was in Europe uh, last week. I've been all over. The there are plenty of pockets of opportunities. So it's a question of, of where, you, where you pick your shots. I mean, where you pick your spots. There are, there are endless opportunities. And I think our Asia business, we have a wealth business in Asia. It's small-ish. Uh, but growing very fast. Um, obviously, that's a focus. Japan, I think, with our partner MUFG is a tremendous focus that I suspect Ted and the team will do even more with, which he's already started doing on the trading side. Um, so there are endless opportunities. I'm, I'm not worried about what that. What are the biggest challenges with China in particular, given the rising geopolitical mm -hmm. tensions and the state of the economy there? Well, China has, you know, China has some fundamental challenges. First and foremost is demographics. Um, the one-child policy guaranteed the population's going to shrink. And right when you need more productive working people coming through to support the older generation, uh, they've got fewer of them and they don't have good immigration. So I think China has some profound challenges on demographics. It has profound challenges in terms of building a consumption economy. 
um, you know, that there's still an export savings-driven economy. So, I, but on the other hand, China's 1.4 billion people, uh, second largest economy in the world, uh, and gross domestic product. It's it's a key factor in global economic health. You've been very vocal about the new regulations being made in the United States about bank capital, sure. about operational risk. Do you believe the rules are likely to change before implementation based on your recent discussions with regulators? And what do you think they will look like at the end? Oh, they'll definitely change. I mean, they put out an extended comment period, which got extended further. Uh, there have been thousands of comments put into the various regulatory bodies uh, led by the Fed. Um, it, was, it was a proposal that I would say uh, was extremely aggressive and set a marker. Um, it will not go through in that form. If it did, uh, I think it would have very, very negative consequences for corporate lending across this country, which is not what you want. It's not going to help the economy grow. Well, you've also spoken about the Treasury market potential impacts from these regulations. Sure. We've already seen stresses of late in the Treasury market. Do you have fears that those stresses will be exacerbated? I can't tell until I see the actual rules, but all I know is... What was put out is highly, highly, highly unlikely to be what is ultimately regulated. Now, investors don't necessarily see that or agree with it, but in my experience, I've been in this a long time. I was on the Fed board for six years in New York. I chaired the FAC in Washington. Um, I think this is a highly aggressive proposal that will be materially wound back when it finally becomes law or regulation. Now there has been tighter capital rules proposed under the Biden administration. There's also been a lot of regulatory actions taken against banks. If the Republicans take the White House in 2024, uh, whether it's Donald Trump or another contender, do you expect that this tighter regulatory environment will just fully unwind? It's too, it's too hard to project. I, you know, I think we're in, you know, we, you, you see pendulum swing and we swung to lighter regulation to, I think, an excessive proposal. I think it'll swing back. So it's heading back to more balanced regulation. And that's where it should be. I'm, I'm all about balance. I, the banking system should not be deregulated. That would be a nightmare. On the other hand, if you overregulate and you require capital standards that are so high that the banks are uninvestable, they can't grow. That doesn't serve communities well. You need prosperous, thriving banks to provide lending products for small businesses and consumers. And you've been listening to James Gorman, Executive Chairman now at Morgan Stanley with Bloomberg's Shanali Basic. And coming up, why we could see more volatility in the bond market this year. You're listening to Bloomberg Best. This is Bloomberg Best on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Denise Pellegrini. A lot of suspense about the bond market this year after a wild 2023. A summer warning now, the Fed might not cut rates as soon as others were hoping. And Jeffrey Sherman, Deputy Chief Investment Officer at DoubleLine Capital, is one of those potential skeptics. Bloomberg's Romain Bostic and Scarlett Fu caught up with Sherman and asked him to explain what he thinks is actually going on. Let's listen in. Well, if you think about where we're starting the year, like at least from the bond market's perspective, it's not much different than where we entered last year. Uh, there was a lot of volatility throughout the year. I think the, the 10-year Treasury effectively almost closed exactly where it started, uh, 2020, or where it closed in 2022. So as you start to look across the board, I think the, the things that have changed a little bit are some of the risk in the market. I know last year it was something like, um, I don't know, like 80% of economists were forecasting for a recession last year and that Fed policy was going 
going to be a, bit, a very problematic. And uh, you know, it didn't really materialize. But I think th- those risks are still building out there. But the big question is: is that is the Fed going to actually do the opposite and come to the rescue? And you know, you're starting to see there's there's talks. Of, if you look at the Fed minutes, there are talks of rate hikes in it. There's talks of a pause in it, and there's talks of rate cuts in it. So mm-hmm. I think there's something for everyone right now. <laughs> and uh, really, I think what we're going to have to be focusing on is the labor market. And I, I think that as you look as as you look into this year, to the the risks are still there mm-hmm. uh, for that recession. And ultimately, I think it's going to really come down to uh, essentially how the labor market unfolds. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what everybody's focusing on, probably less so than maybe the direct inflation reports. I am curious that when you go back to early last year, when everybody really was predicting the potential for a recession, and we should just, in fairness, that our folks here at Bloomberg Intelligence were predicting a 100% chance of a recession in 2023. That proved to be wrong. But there was a reason why those calls were made, Jeff. You saw the data. It was all there, suggesting, at least on a historical basis, we were headed towards one. You had a yield curve inversion that was the, the worst that we've seen since the financial crisis. What happened? Uh, at the end of the day, I, I think what, what's happened there is that those those risks still are, are present. And so the thing is, the yield curve is still inverted. This is one of the longest uh, tenures of, of uh, yield curve inversion when you look at like twos, tens, um, since really back in the early 40s. And so it's really problematic uh, that you see that the market is really fighting the Fed here too. And so the market, the, the rallies we've seen, uh, what we've been calling the, the, the everything rally since November 1st, um, really just started to really be predicated on rate cuts again. So if the Fed was really tried and true with their higher for longer mantra, I think that we would get closer to the recession. And, you know, when people call for soft landings, usually what that means is that there's some problematic area of the economy. It just doesn't have the breadth across that. That's what makes it a hard landing. And so I still think that there there are still some challenged areas. But if, if we start to see some of these rate cuts, maybe some of those problematic areas do get skirted. And and the, the Fed achieves the, the miracle of being able to really navigate this hiking cycle and be able to normalize policy back without causing pain. The problem is, is that historically, the Fed has a 100% track record in most of these instances um, of causing a recession, at least when they stay dedicated to the hiking cycle. Right, right. Well, interest rates are a very blunt tool when it comes down to it. You mentioned risks. What is the bigger risk right now? Um, a reignition in inflation or a stronger than expected labor? Mark. Yeah, I, I think the labor market has been relatively strong. I know a lot of people question it, saying, you know, is it the birth-death model? On on whole, the labor market has has held up pretty resiliently. And when you look at unemployment claims, whether it's continuing or initial claims, they're, they're not they're not putting up red flags at this point. And so um, I, I don't think that the labor market is going to reignite, and you're going to start to see three and four hundred thousand jobs per month being created. Uh, but I do think that the bigger risk is the inflation, and I think the Fed will have concerns about some of this, which is why we kind of scratch our heads with Jay Powell at the last press conference. You know, in November, he talked about financial conditions being tied, the bond market signaling it, then bought rates rally, financial conditions ease. Mm-hmm. It made no mention really of it at the last press conference. But if the Fed does believe in these wealth effects um, that, that we heard from Bernanke in, in two administrations ago at the Fed, that ultimately, you know, when, when people feel wealthier, risk assets rally, their portfolios go up, they spend 
more, maybe then all of a sudden this starts to cause some concern at the Fed that we start to see this kind of reacceleration of inflation. But uh, at this stage, we, we see core inflation has been dampening. The trajectory is right, but the market is definitely extrapolating this into that the Fed is going to normalize yeah. policy back to a much lower rate. And uh, it just seems that it's a little optimistic mm -hmm. to think that's going to happen so soon as early as March. What's priced right now? Yeah. What's priced in? I think what it is is that we're, we're going to have a smooth process or the softest kind of landing. Or um, I, I don't typically believe in a no landing scenario because there's always a bankruptcy or two there. But uh, I think what you see in corporate spreads is that the idea that at least the can is kicked down the road. And think about the problems we saw with high yield and spreads widening out. Once we got the rally, you saw a lot of refinancing activity over the summer. Uh, some of the, the debt that was due, let's say in 2024, got extended out. And you're seeing that both in investor grade and high yield where the, the tenors or the maturities have been, have been um, taken out farther along the curve. And so typically when you have a big default cycle, it's either concentrated in one industry or you have what's called the maturity wall that, that really hits where you get all this debt that has to be refinanced at the same time and the market kind of has indigestion over that. And so this smoothness on this refinancing has probably caused some of these spreads to come in a little bit as well. And when you look at the overall market, because in general, what you've seen is just this kind of idea that, well, the debt isn't due. It's buy now, pay later, right? Yeah. All you have to do is carry the coupon. And so you're willing to finance at a higher coupon simply because you want to be able to survive through the cycle. And so um, this, is, this is part of, I think, where, where you see spreads being tighter is for that reason. So I don't know if it's perfection. I mean, remember, pre-pandemic, we've seen spreads inside of 100 on corporate bonds. I mean, um, there was a period there in the, in the mid-teens where we traded in the 60s and 70s. So yeah. you, you have this idea where ultimately this isn't perfection, yeah. but it doesn't give you a lot of wiggle room at this stage. Is it easier now, uh, I guess, to uh, execute, execute uh, the trades and, and whatever sort of investment vision that's coming out of the investment committee there? Is it easier to do that now in this environment versus maybe where we were at the start of the rate hiking cycle? Well, I, I think right now what you see is that the, the issuance activities picked up because yields are lower. So not just spreads being tighter, but effectively the treasury rates being lower. So when you when you look at the rally we've seen over the last you know couple of months, I mean, in some instances, some parts of the curve are in 100 basis points. And mm -hmm. so this all of a sudden makes it meaningfully more attractive for these, these companies to come out. So I know our corporate team has been talking about it uh, in our meetings this week about just the amount of issuance coming in the marketplace. Again, Again, because corporate CFOs are smart. Yeah. They say, hey, it's a good time to access the market. We don't know how long it lasts. Let's go ahead and let's get out into the market and do some of our traditional issuance. And so there, there's the ideal uh, ability to affect those trades. But at the beginning of the hiking cycle, it was still pretty easy as well because there was this, this uh, dearth of supply coming because effectively people are saying, oh, here comes the hiking cycle. <laughs> right. I need to go issue the debt today, right? So it, it's it, the idea here is, is not that you know, it's, it's ever easier, more challenging. It's all about liquidity. And when you get asset price rallies, things become easier to yes. execute. And what we're seeing right now is what, what our, our credit folks call a grabby market. And that's a technical term we use here. Just people are looking for bonds. They're grabbing onto anything, anything that has yield right now. And so you're seeing this, especially in markets that haven't had supply, something like our commercial real estate markets, right? right, right. CMBS, which was very problematic for a lot of investors. We're, we're hearing 
about people trying to bid on bond three, four points higher today. And what it is is that they're thinking about the end of the hiking cycle. They're thinking that these things are potentially going to start to clear better. Mm -hmm. And so you're starting to see some of that activity. But, um, you know, that that's where we teach patience and persistence. So you have a seasoned team. You don't go chase those of grabby course. type of areas. And you make sure you have the positioning coming into it. And that was Jeffrey Sherman, Deputy Chief Investment Officer at Double Line Capital. And coming up, should those college athletes get paid? There's one important voice who thinks it'll happen soon. You're listening to Bloomberg Best. Broadcasting from the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Bloomberg 1130 to Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991 to Boston, Bloomberg 1061 to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960 to the country, Sirius XM 121, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business app and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Best. I'm Denise Pellegrini, and one thing that is haunting a lot of people in the sports world is whether college athletes should get paid an actual salary. We asked George Pine, CEO and founder at Bruin Capital, about the score. He says colleges will have to start paying their athletes soon. Of course, paying college athletes would trigger a whole new host of problems when you think about it. And Bloomberg's Romain Bostic and David Weston asked Pine all about it. Check this out. The news that ESPN's got an extension now on the championship games, I think a lot of it may have to do with football, just under a billion dollars, a billion dollars they're paying now. Is there anything left of the uh, amateur part of this athletics as opposed to the professional? Well, there's a lot of value in college sports. It's exciting. Uh, and, of course, that's for 40 sports, men's and women, you know, the, for a billion dollars or $100 million or so a year. You know, the college football playoffs are going to go for a billion five to two point three billion just for the playoffs in college football. So this shows the disparity between college football and all the other sports out there. So, so where does this all go next? As you know, some coaches, including Mr. Harbaugh, my coach at Michigan, has said we should start paying the players. Is that inevitable? Well, a couple things. One, great games. Both games went down to the last play, so the player movement really didn't hurt the quality of the competition. Where it's headed. I think you're going to have to pay the players. I mean, the, uh, college football is the number two sport in America. In attendance, in television ratings, generates six to eight billion dollars a year. And I think what you, those players deserve to be paid. And I think you see the courts now recognizing that, that um, it, the players, you can't restrict their trade, their motion, they need to be paid and share in some of that money. What does that look like, though? Where does that money come from? Does that flow from the schools directly, or is that going to come from the NCAA directly? It's going to come from the schools, uh -huh. right? And what you're going to see, I think, eventually is the players will be bargaining collectively. I think that they're probably going to have to do individual contracts so that they can restrict the movement. I mean, yeah. competitors, universities, well, our competitors, yeah. uh, cannot restrict the movement of players without compensation. And with that kind of money generating around, you're going to have to bargain collectively, and guys will have to do individual contracts. That's going to be interesting, and of course, that's going to be messy for a lot of schools. And I am curious, I mean, not to brag, David, but Northwestern University, the Wildcats, the team, they had actually attempted several years ago to unionize, and of course, that ran into uh, uh, failures in the court system. What's different now that would allow something like that to happen that they couldn't do uh, 15 years ago? I think the money yeah. has just become so yeah. significant. So, look, if you take a step yeah. back, it's the success of college sports. It's yeah. amazing. People love it, but it's huge business. And I think to, as a fairness principle, mm -hmm. the guy, you know, you think about the college football playoff, they're going to be getting over $100 million per, for one game. Yeah. 
Should the guys participating in that game share in that economic success? I think nine out of ten reasonable people say yes. So I think you know the money's so overwhelming but how, that it's but how much. How much do you think could actually go to the players? I mean, we're talking a situation where a college player, in theory, a top-tier college player, could be making more than maybe sort of a middle-of-the-road professional athlete. I don't know if it goes yeah. that far, yeah. but I think there'll be some sharing. Yeah. And of course, you have other things too: work conditions. Mm-hmm. You know how much they do in training, what the off-season looks yeah. like, how people move around, and it's yeah. complicated because people are there to get an education. So you're trying to balance education, economic fairness, and keeping a, a reasonable model. Model. And those are the yeah. things the industry is uh, grappling with. And it's quite complex. And part of the hard part is it's complex in a fragmented industry. Well, exactly. It's complex and it's a huge change, a real sea change. Who's going to really be in charge of managing that sea change? Is the NCAA up to that job? Not everybody has complete confidence in the NCAA. I think the NCAA has a very difficult job. There are 1,100 members. We're talking probably 130 football members here, and even you could argue a smaller number. And so the NCAA is in a no-win situation. And the challenge is it's very fragmented. Industry, colleges, as you know, the colleges switch conferences, coaches switch teams, athletic directors move around, presidents move around, players are restricted, payers are not compensated. That's not going to fly. So I think you're gonna, it, it's either going to have one or two things. The courts are going to lead like they did with the NAL. People knew the NAL was coming for five years. The industry could not agree. The courts led the way. Same thing here. The courts will either lead the way, or I hope, because I love the, the sports, uh, I'd love to see the industry coalesce and come together with the solution. So it'll be one or two, the courts or the industry. The reason it's up in the air is it's so fragmented. So you say you love the sport. We do. I know Romain loves the sport. How do you preserve the sport, though, the competitiveness of the sport? Because in professional, for example, you have to really manage parity because otherwise you get the haves and the have-nots and the games aren't very good. Right. It's going to be very complicated. You have uh, all those issues, education, parity, fairness, very complex issues. And that's why it's hard to find a consensus amongst competitors of what to do. And so that's why it's going to be tricky. And that's why an inability to agree could lead to the courts deciding and not the industry. Uh, we've had a little space now since uh, the name image likeness uh, became uh, law of the land, for lack of a better phrase here. Is there anything we can learn from the rollout and implementation of that uh, in, in, in terms of extrapolating what a rollout of actually paying the payers directly would be? Well, they were on, uh, NIL was hoped to be uh, based on endorsement revenue. Mm-hmm. It became a legal way to pay players. Right. And it had unintended uh, consequences mm-hmm. in the competition of the sport. And people don't like that. And that's why I think it would be better if you had it, uh, things collectively bargained and people did contracts because you'd have predictability, you'd have rules, it'd be better organized. The NIL kind of led to a free-for-all and the intended consequence. And, intention was to pay the players for endorsements, and it came really pay to play. So uh, we've talked about some of the disparities among uh, schools. What about among sports? Because we're talking about football here. What does this do to the the so-called lesser sports in a lot of these schools? Do they get left behind? It's primarily football. Basketball has meaningful value, too. But the rest of the sports are really not in the same area. And one of the concerns there, one, are Title IX, how it affects women's athletics. And two is the Olympic movement. The Olympic movement, internationally, many of the best athletes in the world come to America to train, as well as the American athletes. And that system has provided for, that, for those sports. So those sports uh, are being underwritten by the revenues primarily from football. And so if that money goes to the players, that money may not be there for those other sports. George, you've been on the inside of so long. If you were to guess, how long is this process going to take? When will this settle back down? 
I think it'll take three to five years to, to shake out. I think if the industry does it, it'll be within the next three years. If it's settled through the courts, it'll take a little longer, maybe five years. It gets, gets to this idea, though, also of just amateur sports in general, and in addition to the actual collegiate itself, that whole universe of Olympic athletes who, of course, have had their own battles and being able to uh, get compensated for uh, their images and for their performance as well here. Have we kind of moved to the stage in society now where there really won't any be true amateur sports, at least not at, at the elite level? No, I think there will be. Yeah. I mean, elite golf or these other sports, I think, will, will remain think, amateur. Okay. But, like, but like the Olympics, think yeah. about the Olympics. There was a time where you couldn't have pros in the Olympics. Yeah. They transitioned. They modernize, and people love the Olympic Games. I think that's my hope is the same can happen for college athletics. But you're gonna might have to separate football and basketball from the other sports because those issues are quite different than the other sports. It's all inevitable. Is it good for the sport hmm. in your judgment? Well, I think it will be. You know, we've heard so much negativity about the transfer portal and player movement. So I think the game will stay true. This is a choppy period. It's an evolution, hopefully not a revolution. Yeah. And that was George Pine, CEO and founder at Bruin Capital with Bloomberg's David Weston and Romain Bostic. All right, switching gears now, you might not think of the HVAC industry as being crucial for climate change, but Dave Gitlin, chairman and CEO at Carrier Global, tells our David Weston and Romain Bostic the climate is changing in his industry too. And Romain and David also ask Gitlin about the future of Carrier when it comes to Carrier's recent acquisition of Wiesman Climate Solutions. Check this out. Well, it's a new year, but it's a new era for Carrier. I could not be more excited about the Wiesman deal. I think history will say this is the most profound acquisition and combination that our industry has ever seen because at Carrier, we're global leaders in just about every vertical, every geography around the world. We had a glaring absence, which is the residential space in Europe which has become the most important, highest growth market in the world. We weren't a real player. So we're number one in commercial HVAC in Europe, but we weren't present in residential. It's become very high growth because everyone is transitioning from gas and oil powered boilers to electric heat pumps. We're seeing on the commercial side, on the commercial side, our heat pumps were up about 30% last year, but the same is happening about the same percentages on the residential side. So we wanted to get into the space and we are so fortunate to combine what is clearly the single best company in that space throughout Europe, Wiesman Climate Solutions. Max Wiesman, the fourth generation Wiesman, officially joined our board, now owns about 7% of our company. And we could not be more thrilled to welcome the 12,000 employees to our family. And you've been listening to David Gitlin, chairman and CEO at Carrier Global with Bloomberg's David Weston and Romain Bostic. And coming up, more from Gitlin on Carrier's future with all the challenges of climate change. You're listening to Bloomberg Best. This is Bloomberg Best on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Denise Pellegrini, and you know the HVAC company Carrier Global has just acquired Wiesman Climate Solutions for just about $13 billion as Carrier expands in Europe. And our Romain Bostic and David Weston, well, they caught up with David Gitlin, chairman and CEO at Carrier Global, to ask him what it all means for the company as the challenges of climate change grow. Let's listen in. So, Dave, we hear a lot about focus, and focus sounds pretty good to me, <laughs> if you can find it, right? At the same time, are there risks with that as well? Because this is a heat pump company, a really foremost heat pump company. There's been a little bit of softening. Has there not been in Europe in heat pumps? 
It's one of the beauties of Eastman is that they're very balanced. They actually, yes, they're number one in heat pumps, but they also have a very strong boiler company. So they're able to flex. So if you see boilers kind of creep back in and increase a little bit more than they had been, they can flex that way. Even in the same factories, they produce both heat pumps and boilers. So they not only have flexibility with boilers, they're the only company in the world that prov provides complete home energy management solutions for homes. So they do solar PV, they have battery storage, they have heat pumps, they have a digital overlay that interfaces with that grid. And that's where the puck is going. That's the future. They're the only ones that do it globally. We want to take that technology, bring it to the U.S., and then bring it outside of Europe as well. Do you think the appetite here in the U.S. is the same as it is in Europe for that type of technology? I think it's going to grow over time. It's not there yet, mm -hmm. but I do think what we need to do is provide the value propositions to the customer. Because mm -hmm. today at Carrier, we cool 500 million people a day, and we also consume a lot of the grid's energy. So we at Carrier consume about 3% of the energy from the grid today. So we need to be part of the solution because what's mm -hmm. going to happen is that everyone's going to get home between 5 and 10 p.m., plug in their cars, turn on their either air conditioning yeah. or heating. Both are going to be electric. Mm -hmm. And you're going to put max demand on the grid between those hours. We need to do load shedding, and we can do that as we start to provide batteries, mm -hmm. storage management, and interface with the grid. That's what we're going to be providing. That doesn't sound like something, though, that you can do solely alone as a company, that you need, obviously, buy-in from regulators at the federal level and, of course, at the local level as well. It's going to be an ecosystem mm -hmm. solution. Yes, yeah. there will be some interface with um, governments. There will be some interface with utilities. It's going to be a solution that we either make or buy batteries ourselves. So it's going to require partnerships. It's going to require ecosystem. But we want to be the front, the front leaders in that space. So these are the acquisitions you're making. What about the dispositions? Uh, we just talked about security with Honeywell. I know you've made a deal on refrigeration. At the same time, you still have fire, both residential and commercial. Where are you with that? We're very excited about the deal on the disposition of security. It's a great business. It's going to a great owner in Honeywell. We sold it for about $5 billion, 17x EBITDA multiple. We got the same multiple on the sale of our stationary refrigeration business to hire about 17x EBITDA. What that leaves is our fire business, and we're selling that. We're going to dispose of that in two different pieces. There's our industrial fire piece. That's progressing extremely well. We're in the market. We're in negotiations. We're in discussions with a number of potential buyers there. That's going to be hopefully sold by the end of the first quarter. And then beyond that, we have our residential and commercial fire, which will either spin as part of a public company or a sale process. You have a fair amount to consolidate here. How long do you think it will take to consolidate? At what point are you back in the market, maybe for further acquisitions? Well, what we've said is first we're going to dispose. Then we're going to get our multiple, our debt to EBITDA down to about 2x. At that point, we'll do a share buyback of at least the amount of shares that we issued to Max Wiesman and the Wiesman family as part of the acquisition. So we'll do a buyback of at least $2.5 billion. Once our multiples get back to about 2x, our, our leverage ratio to about 2x, and then we've always said that our long-term focus is growth, both organic and organic. Uh, it's going to take a little bit for us to do meaningful acquisitions, but we will get there after the buyback and after our leverage ratios are intact. What does that organic growth look like? Well, we've said that our, org our model is 6 to 8% growth annually. And when, what we are doing with our business exits is we've been exiting some of our lower growth businesses mm -hmm. and adding higher growth businesses. So we added Toshiba's very high growth VRF, variable refrigerant flow technology, which is very popular in Asia. It's becoming more popular in Europe and the United States. We exited our Chubb field distribution business. That was lower growth for us. We're now adding Wiesman, which is going to be long-term double-digit growth consistently over a period of time. Mm -hmm. So we look at ourselves at a 6 to 8% organic growth type business. And you've been listening to David Gitlin, Chairman and CEO at Carrier Global, with Bloomberg's David Weston and Romain Bostic. 
That's it for this edition of Bloomberg Best. I'm Denise Pellegrini. This is Bloomberg. Stay with us. Top stories and global business headlines are all coming up right now.